The scripture reading this morning will be Esther 2, 12 through 18. Before the girl's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the woman, six months with oil, myrrh, and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there and the morning return another part of the harem into the care of the king's um, who was in charge of commonites. She would not return to the king unless she was pleased with her and and was summoned by her name. When she... When the turn came for Esther, the girl Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abelai, to the king, she asked nothing other than Higiai, the king's unit, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor everyone saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave her a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. Well, ironically, uh, the title today is Excellence as Witness, and yet I have to start out my uh, presentation this morning with an apology for errors made last week, which does not quite reflect that excellence that I'm talking about. So uh, every now and then, my brain does a switch between two things. Um, I don't know why, but it just does. For example, last week I was studying with Autumn Ramey. Do you know Autumn? She plays the harp. I know who Autumn is. I know her name. I greeted her in the lobby and I said, hi, Autumn. And then I proceeded for several other sentences to refer to her as uh, another A name. And I don't, I don't even remember what that was, but I switched her name. I started calling her Amber. That's what it was. And it just, I'm not even aware that I had done that until she looked at me kind of funny and said, I'm Autumn. And I said, didn't I call you that? And she said, no, you called me Amber. Okay. So I'm looking into the early senility thing. And, uh, you know, if if I have time, I'll try to get a full workup. But I did some switching in last week's sermon, too. Hopefully this is all specific to last week. Maybe I have some sort of virus or something. Um, But last week, I was telling the story of Esther, and I told it wrong. Now, that's not like me. So I need to set the record straight. The empire in question was not the Assyrian Empire. If we look at the chronology of things, the Assyrian Empire covered much of the same area as the Medo-Persian Empire, but it predates Babylon. So you have uh, all these Mesopotamian cultures that are related and connected in some ways, and I switched Assyrian and Persian. You see, by the time we get to the story of Esther, uh, 
It's post-story of Daniel. So Daniel has been captured in Judah by the Babylonians. Daniel has been taken to uh, Babylonia, to the capital. And Nebuchadnezzar and then a succession of kings he serves, ending with the takeover of the Medes and Persians, whom then he also serves the first king of. Now, there's all kinds of interesting archaeological, historical, and biblical study stuff that can be done around the biblical mention of, of Darius in conjunction with Daniel and so forth. But we move forward in time to the story of Esther, uh, which comes a, a bit later in history, closer to our time. And we find that the writing of the book is roughly correspondent to the events themselves in about 460 B.C., right on up to possibly the end of the Persian Empire at 331 A.D. So that's, that's more the window. We're looking at the events in question were more around 460. And the Xerxes of this story is indeed, I had it right about the uh, wars with Greece and, and those details if you were here last week. That was all correct. But Xerxes was of uh, Medo-Persian descent. Now, I say Medo-Persian because they're both Iranian groups by today. Uh, depending on the scholars and the claims and whether you believe them or not, the Medes have become the Kurds. And uh, the Persians are, are more mainstream Iranian tribes. So uh, this is the story of how things sometimes get crossed in my head, and, and uh, I apologize for that. So I, I brought today just a few other details of the story to, in written form this time to make sure that my mind doesn't, doesn't play any kind of games. If we take the story of Esther, which itself uh, models the kind of excellence I'm going to get to, there are several themes that run through it that I just, I just want to make us aware of that we don't think of necessarily when we're reading parts of it, and certainly we don't think of when we're reading the children's stories version. First of all, it's the prominence of Purim, the explanation of how this holiday comes to be and why it's important. And it's very ethnocentric. It's very um, uh, Jewish-centered in its writing, its, its understanding, and its perspective. The second motif that's very clear is the deliverance motif and the deliverance that results in rest, now, this is a, a, an interesting motif, an interesting theme, because it's actually all through the Old Testament. And it relates to not only the Sabbath-type rest that we experience, which is a retreat from or a celebration of the end of the travails of a given week, the work that we engage, and all of the stresses and problems that come with this. But this, in this particular case, the motif is more specific. It's the time of celebration that follows a moment of threat. Remember, when Moses is getting ready to cross the Red Sea for the, you know, as they're being chased by the Egyptians... He extends his hands and rod over the sea. It parts. They go through on dry land. On the other side, they watch as God delivers them from the Egyptians as the waters roll over the chariots and the horsemen and the armed forces and the foot soldiers and so forth. And the might of Egypt is, is stopped. And in that moment then of victory, Miriam leads God's people in a great celebration with instruments and singing and dancing and feasting on the other side. 
There's a deliverance motif. And we find that in Esther too. Interestingly enough, here's a little detail for those of you who like this. And these things are not hard to find if you want to dig for them yourself. Um, any NIV study Bible has a wealth of detail. If you just read the notes, you get some of these pieces. And of course, word commentaries and so forth go into much greater depth. But Haman is referred to as an Agagite. Have you, have you read that, Haman the Agagite? As you've, you've, as you've read the story of Esther, he's referred to. Most likely, that is not a particular tribe or identifying uh, point in terms of the people of the Medes and Persians. Most likely, that is a reference to King Agog, who was king of the Amalekites, who attacked Israel. They were the first to attack Israel as they uh, were leaving Egypt and coming to the Promised Land and became a, a sort of symbol of the enemy of God's people. So for the Jewish reader, Haman the Agagite is this one who represents those who would kill God's people, those who would interfere with God's plan to save. Which brings me to the next motif, which is remnant. The remnant motif in Esther is that here we have a few of God's people left over. Cyrus had decreed, as you recall, that the people of God could return to Israel and rebuild. Are you remembering that? That the temple could be rebuilt, the city of Jerusalem could be rebuilt. And of course there are lots of books in the Old Testament dealing with the rebuilding and the, and the struggles there. But in that particular decree, uh, most of the Jews did leave Babylon in that area and go into rebuild, but, but many of them did not. And I referred to this last week, and that was accurate as well. They stayed back, they stayed by, and continued their businesses, continued in their lines of work, continued to raise their families in these, this foreign place, having been dispersed there. And so uh, Mordecai is one of these Jews, and his niece Esther, and they're scattered throughout the land of the Medes and Persia, but which the... The land, of course, went from the boundary of Israel, Cush, by the sea, all the way over to India. So it's a huge area that we're talking about. So Cush is, you know, North Africa, that, that, anyway, that whole line right there, all the way over to India, the Bible says, was their, their province. So when we look at this, we have a, a tremendous kingdom, a number of Jews scattered throughout it, a tremendous empire, and we have the remnant of God's people scattered in this empire. And in Susa itself, there are Jews as well. So this theme runs through. And of course, the remnant, what happens to the remnant? Are they destroyed? Tell me, in biblical theology, are the remnant destroyed? No, what happens to the remnant? God saves them. It's the process of salvation and salvation history. Well, there are lots of uh, duples in Esther as well. Two feasts that she puts on. Two feet, you know. You just go through and count the repetitions, and it's this marvelous literary device the author of Esther uses to get us through. And finally, um, the most incredible device of all: Esther is devoid of references to God, to worship, to prayer, or to the daily sacrifices. Completely devoid. 
Now, I could do an entire sermon on that fact. And really, today, I, I'm going to draw on that fact very heavily. We sometimes have a tendency to equate true worship and service, loyalty and so forth, with extrinsic factors. Let me put that in English. We sometimes think that the meaning of being spiritual and religious is found in the external forms we practice. And yet the assumption in the book of Esther is that God in his providence is not only leading and guiding and moving in the hands of history, but that God's promise to save is being fulfilled through the story and through history itself. God is present in and among these things apart from an invocation. Now that, to me, is really significant. Because what it speaks of is a life of integrated spirituality. What it speaks of is a life that understands it isn't these are good things too, by the way. I'm not here to interfere with your practice of daily religion. I'm here to encourage it. So when I make this contrast, I'm not accusing anybody of anything. But it is easy. Let me take mealtime prayer because this is where I think it's probably truest for me. Through Jesus, thank you for this wonderful day. Bless this food to our bodies. Amen. I haven't said a whole lot, have I? And I'm betting that about 95% of your daily prayers for meals resemble that. And if you pray for every meal, that's a lot of repetitions. Have I been religious? You're not sure. Praying before a meal, have I been religious? But has that really reflected a spirituality? Maybe to the extent that I've bothered to make it a religious practice and observe it at every meal. It reflects some sort of inner clock or inner awareness. Maybe it reflects to some degree a commitment to making a connection several times a day on an overt basis with God. But I don't know that it reveals that much about my spirituality. I'm not sure it tells God much and it certainly doesn't tell me much. If I live my life in gratitude and I share what I have, am I not praying a more powerful prayer? I, I, I'm just challenging our thinking here. The reason Esther ends up included in Scripture is because of these themes and these facts. Wise people understood that it wasn't the mention of God that made it a godly book. They understood that it wasn't its references to worship that would make it powerful in terms of its testimony to his providence. It wasn't going to be the sacrifices that pointed to his salvation or the mention of them again. It was going to be the way in which the story itself unfolded and was told and revealed to God who was and is in history. 
a God who saves. A God who's looking out for his people. That is a powerful theme. That's a theme that I want to journey in. Some of the highlights of the story, if we can come back to that for just a minute, do point us in the direction of excellence. As a bridge, I would point to the way it's told and written. You saw in the slideshow how many of our Pathfinders with the voice recordings, and thank you, Richard, for doing that, the voice recordings of our Pathfinders stating for themselves what the highlights were of this time. Many of them cited the evening play and the story from Esther. It's because the story is a powerful one and well told. There's great drama. There are little literary hints as to what the figures are. Like Haman the Agagite. Every if, if I understand that correctly, if, I've, if scholars have picked up on the real meaning of Agagite there, that is a reference to salvation history that goes all the way back to the Exodus. Every observant Jew, every educated Jew would understand that reference. It's part of the story. Here is the character who wants to destroy God's people and he's going to hang 75 feet in the air from a gallows of his own making. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Here is a man who has put into law with the king's own signet ring a law that cannot be revoked. That on a particular day of a particular month, all the Jews in the kingdom are to be rounded up and executed. But thanks to Esther and her courage, another irrefutable law is passed. And that is that on that day, Jews will have the right to arm themselves, to gather, and to defend themselves against any and all attacks. Indeed, to take action against any of their enemies. What we don't hear in the children's story version is that the Jews killed 75,000 of their enemies in Medo-Persia throughout the empire. They took vengeance on everybody who would get rid of them. And Mordecai rose to unprecedented power in the court of the king. Who does this remind us of? Daniel. Who else? Joseph. Tremendous corollaries to the life of Joseph in, in the book of Esther. These things are excellence. Don't you love a good piece of literature? Now, your taste in books may be different than mine, but every now and then I find a book that I just can't put down. There are authors that just capture my attention and keep it. Authors, I, I, they're just compelling. I mean, you probably have read authors like that. Authors that make you stay up later at night than you should. You go to work all bleary the next morning because you finally nodded off about 2.30 and had to get up at 5. Anybody done that? Well, I know who the readers are now. The rest of you, you've done that with television. Don't lie non-reader types out there. So here we have this, this, this bit of literature here in, in Esther, and it's not just that, mind you, but it's compelling. It's told with excellence. It's written with style. It's got these little references in it to keep you thinking and keep you understanding the subtext and the subtext of that. It's got theme and 
sub-theme and para-themes. It's got all kinds of stuff going in it. And the reader can delight again and again and again in its telling because it comes back to an event that we're going to remember. Events we all need to remember. God saves. God is in the business of doing just that. The excellence is not limited. It is not limited to the storytelling. There's excellence in the story itself. And thus our reading for today. Recall from the reading of the text today that a girl who was going to be brought to King Xerxes, given the command to round up the most beautiful virgins in the kingdom and begin treatments. I mentioned this last week as well, and that was accurate too. They, I have to give myself credit where credit is due. Yeah, because when, when we meet in the back, you're going to tell me what I, what I got wrong, not what I got right. <laughs> Thankfully, that, that's much more economical, uh, much more economical. Before a girl's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments. Prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with perfume and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king anytime anything she wanted was given to take her from the harem to the king's palace. It would be a sort of dowry, I guess, jewelry, clothing, whatever she wanted to go before the king with, she could take. In the evening, she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shaashkas, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. Boy, what a job for a king to remember the names of all these women. When the turn came for Esther, the girl Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle, Abihail, to go to the king. She asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, suggested, and Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the tenth the, the month of Tebeth in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. And he proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. Now, if I remember correctly... Uh, Queen Vashti was banished in the fourth year of Xerxes' reign. Somebody will be able to, to verify that. And that means that three years later, after all these people have been rounded up and groomed and the beauty treatments given, the process begins. And the king will eventually select a queen. Now let me tell you, this makes Miss America look like well, nothing by comparison. And if you know anything about beauty pageants, they're very competitive, <laughs> brutally so. They're very competitive and 
very demanding. Queen Esther Hadassah exemplified beauty in simplicity, in trusting the advice of those who cared for her. She lived out her value and personality as is evidenced by the fact that she won over her peers. She didn't just win queen, she won Miss Congeniality. Those who cared for her loved her and those in her presence loved her. That is not about beauty. That is about inner beauty. That is about character. That is about personality. That is about personal excellence. And all this time, she's honoring her uncle who has told her not to reveal who she is. Not to reveal that she's Jewish. It's a story of excellence and how excellence rises. Joseph's that kind of story, isn't it, right? I mean, you know this extremely well. Joseph is a spoiled, favored child who ends up sold to Egypt by Amalekite, Amorite, I'll get that one wrong too, traitors who end up selling him in Egypt. He ends up in Potiphar's household, who's captain of the king's guard, rises to the top of Potiphar's household, is cast in prison through a false accusation, rises to second of the jailers because he's so helpful to the jailers, he's a liaison, an ombudsman, as it were, between the prisoners and the jailers, finally gets remembered to the king and upon interpreting a very difficult set of dreams and laying forth a plan before Pharaoh, is put in charge. By the time his brothers come to see him again, he's second in all of Egypt. Daniel will be honored by four kings. These people exemplified intrinsic spirituality that manifested itself externally, not in overt and mandatory religiosity, but but became exemplified in excellence. And it stood as a witness. If we think about what we're attracted to on almost any level, for most of us, excellence of some kind is part of the equation. I like very smart, competent women. I'm attracted to that. And that's what I married. A very, very smart. I, I have my work cut out for me, keeping up uh, with, with my wife. Many of you are attracted similarly to these kinds of things. And my testimony about Oshkosh is this. Oshkosh was a, a moment of shining pride for me because it represented excellence in every part. From the camp where 35,000 people from all countries, all backgrounds, ethnicities, and so forth cohabitated in peace and harmony. Bear in mind the Oshkosh 
police department thought so highly that even when there were parades of youth numbering 4,500 and 5,000, they would have one car and three officers present. That's it. No riot gear, no, no question. Sure, the toilets, the showers... Um, but all that faded into nothingness when you could watch a core of dedicated drummers go down the street and hear the complexities of the rhythm and watch the pride as they marched. Out in the lobby are displayed pins. We did tons of pin trading, and each club came up, well, not every club, but many clubs came up with their own designs or put their names on designs from their conferences. The unions had pins. There's some gloriously beautiful pins out there, interesting pins. I did a little challenge of excellence of my own. I took two of our pins, which are uh, really cool. You'll see them out there. It's the Santa Clarita Condors, and it's... Santa Clarita uh, with the oak trees and uh, the Colossus at Magic Mountain and then Ventura County with the surfer and waves and it was a pretty popular trading pin actually. But I gave two to every Pathfinder who would take me up on the challenge of my pins and said, go see what you can get for these. Varying levels of achievement but each brought back something either equivalent to or greater than what I had given. What I uh, want to say to, I'm not going to make a presentation, but Josh took two pins and got a really rare set of the whole of Canada, the Canadian Union set. It's out there. It's really pretty. And by the way, Josh, if you'll leave your Canadian pieces and talk your dad into leaving his, you can take my set that you earned and enjoy that. And Richard, my pins are for the club, so uh, you may uh, have those. Uh, there's one I want to retrieve, and that's it. It was a birthday gift. What can I say? Um, beautiful pins, excellence. Kids trading, having fun, interchanging. Where are you from? Excellence. Excellence in presentations, excellence in honors, excellence in the museum there, excellence as we walked across to Oshkosh itself and saw the antique aircraft and the displays there with Dick Rutan and all of his achievements in aviation. Excellence was everywhere we looked, and the evening production wasn't cheesy in the least. Huge stage with great props and incredible actors and good music. It was a wonderful Thing to watch all of these pathfinders singing praise to God and unselfconsciously. Now, see, you, you can't be unselfconscious in a lit room of this size. It doesn't work. And if you take 15 pathfinders and put them in the room and play the guitar for them, somebody's going to make fun of something or joke around or jump around and everybody notices and it it, it can kill it fast. But when there are 35,000 people, the guy who wants to clown around disappears. And all these voices and all of this energy becomes worship of excellence. And it's beautiful. It was compelling. I was so proud of our church and what it communicated to our young people at this event. And that's what I want to leave you with. I want to leave you with the clear conviction 
that when you pursue excellence, whether it's in your daily work or in a hobby or in your home or in your interactions or in yourself, you stand as a witness. Maybe God isn't mentioned. Maybe worship isn't mentioned. Maybe sacrifice is not mentioned. Maybe prayer is not mentioned. But when people see you, they will see the divine. And the story of Esther will repeat itself because in excellence, we'll all have the courage to stand. And now may the God of Esther enable each of us to stand, calling us to the excellence that will reflect the truth and value of his name. For these things, Lord, we would seek. Amen.